The world isn't simple anymore. And on the Walden Pond podcast, your host, anti-fraud expert Vince Walden, is talking to experts about the technology and compliance trends you need to know about to keep your compliance and fraud detection programs relevant. If you're looking for insights that are practical, timely, and innovative, welcome to The Pond. Welcome to The Pond. I'm your host, Vincent Walden, part of the Tom Fox Compliance Podcast Network. I'm here today with uh, Steve Spiegelhalter, who uh, leads the North American Investigation Practice for Alvarez and Marcel. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. Glad you could be here, and welcome to the firm. In typical Walden Pond fashion, I'm going to open up with a quote from our mascot, Henry David Thoreau. And he wrote, I like this quote, it's kind of kind of reminds me of continuous learning. Do what you love, know your own bone, gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, and then gnaw at it still. <laughs> it's pretty raw. What do you think about that? Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think it's a good description of anyone who does something they love for a living, which certainly is where I fall. I wouldn't have kept doing this in so many different places if it wasn't so interesting. And I, you know, I love what I do. Every case is different. And, and I love looking at these things from all different angles. So I thought that was a, it was a great quote you dug up. Yeah. As long as there's, it's funny, as long as there's compliance and fraud risks out there and investigations to be had, it's always going to be some new and interesting skill set and interesting things to unearth. And um, with your background, it's quite diverse and cool. And I thought maybe we start out, I'd love to give the audience a little bit about your background. Again, the audience is being compliance professionals and investigators like yourself. But give us a little bit of background, starting with, you know, even the work that you did with the DOJ and then how you got to be an A&M. Sure. So, you know, consistent with your quote and kind of the conversation we just had, I absolutely love seeing issues from every side. And I've done that for what I do, investigations, compliance, you know, a lot of corruption work, sanctions work and things like that. I've really followed my own advice on that and tried to see these issues from every side. I started at Latham & Watkins back in 2001, worked there for five years. It was the FCPA was, uh, which is you know something I, I've spent a lot of time on, was not that big of a deal back then. Very interesting. I remember writing my first memo for a client on the FCPA way back when. After that, I left and went to the Department of Justice. For four years, I was at AUSA and really cut my teeth trying cases and figuring out what the rules of evidence were. And I think it gave me some of the raw tools to assess when there's a case, when there's not a case. And and also to figure out kind of the psychology of people, which I think is such a huge part of investigations, being able to talk to people, to empathize with them, to build a relationship with them. And, and then that kind of gets you where you need to be as an investigator a lot of times. From there, I went to be a trial attorney at the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit in DOJ criminal fraud. And while there, I did a number of kind of the headliner cases, but the biggest one I did actually was in the compliance area. I prosecuted a managing director of an international investment bank for circumventing the bank's controls. And it was the case where DOJ sort of announced how a company can escape paying a fine and having its own criminal resolution, even though one of its sort of high up officers did something they shouldn't have done. And so that kind of set me down the compliance path more or less. From there, I went in-house. I was a compliance officer and senior counsel at IBM. I led a lot of investigations there, obviously. I learned about in-house pressures, you know, in-house is a totally different animal. Being in-house is, can be tough. And, you know, I reviewed legal bills. I did the kind of the whole nine yards. 
And then I came to consulting. So I led EY's forensics practice in Washington, D.C., where I did a number of investigations that put me back before my, my friends at DOJ and SEC. And now I'm at Alvarez and Marcel, where I had a chance to take you know, a, larger, a larger role and lead a bigger investigations practice. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to have you at Alvarez and Marcel. So welcome. So let's you know, put our investigations hat on. And, and we think about the future of conducting internal investigations. How are you seeing chief compliance officers and GCs getting more efficient and effective in how they're conducting their investigations? You know, especially over the last five years and maybe even more recently given COVID in a remote environment. Yeah, I, I think, look, I think one of the biggest differences is that in-house, you know, GCs and CCOs have become much more sophisticated at judging what's a big deal and what's not. So I think back in the day, I think a lot of things got kicked to outside counsel and to consultants. And I think now there's a little more discernment about what's a big deal and what's not. And I think by the same token, when it is a big deal, I think that GCs and chief compliance officers have gotten a lot better at interacting with outside counsel and consultants to try to get to the bottom of things efficiently. I, I think that you know when you keep using that same muscle and over, over and over again, you really figure out how to approach these issues. And you know they might be a different flavor every time, but a lot of them come back to core issues. I would say the second thing I've seen is that some big companies have gone through waves of hiring experienced investigators. That's how I wound up in-house. Obviously, mm -hmm. when I was in-house, I hired <clears throat> former FBI agents and SEC accountants to help me figure out what was important, what's not important. Obviously, every company is not going to do that. But I, I think the talent in-house and the compliance experience has really grown and, and added a whole new capability to what companies can do on their own. Yeah, I've certainly seen a lot of companies get more sophisticated in-house for not only compliance, but electronic discovery and analytics, et cetera. So yeah, I think the capability is there and the learning continues. Interesting. Now, when you think about the compliance risks and investigations you're seeing, especially nowadays, is it still anti-corruption? FCPA still the driving force? Or are you seeing other regulatory issues that compliance professionals need to be aware of? Look, I think FCPA and corruption are always going to be a big deal, especially as foreign prosecutors, foreign law enforcement have gotten so much more involved. You know, the Brazilians, uh, some of the Western Europeans have really picked up where the United States had sort of started off. So I think that's always going to be a huge deal. I think there are a few things about the COVID era and some of the financial consequences of that that have, have really highlighted that there are those long-term risks that have always been there that are just becoming more and more prominent. As there's less money sloshing around in companies, past risky schemes that might have been covered if more money was coming in, they sort of are laid bare. There's, there's been a lot of writing actually in The Economist on this. I, I think they've done a good job of pointing out that when the business cycle turns down, that's when you figure out that there were things happening in the heyday that probably shouldn't have happened. At the same time, I've, you know, I've certainly seen where salespeople need to make up lost ground and companies will give them large incentives and that drives a lot of bad behavior. So you wind up with the same kind of books and records, corruption issues that happen. Layoffs that come with, with a financial downturn like we're seeing now, they just create droves and droves of whistleblowers. So things that have happened in the company over a period of years that maybe would have gone by the wayside, those people aren't seeing their coworkers face to face every day, which I think makes things a little bit easier, maybe to whistleblow or they're just frankly getting laid off and, and it's an opportunity to, to sort of get things off their chest that happened that they saw inside the company. And so altogether, I think we're seeing an uptick in accounting fraud issues, books and records issues, and then some of the other mainstays with the current administration. Sanctions compliance has become a very, very big deal 
And that that's not just for banks, that's for companies that sell goods all over the world. And then, and like you said, ABAC is still sort of a top of mind for everybody. Yeah, I've recently worked on some sanctions and trade compliance projects, and, and you're right. And it's not only just the sales perspective of that, it's you know the supply chain of making sure your products are in a manufacturing context, you know, aren't sourced from Syria or Cuba or sanctions country. It's pretty interesting. And yeah, that is a, I see that as definitely a driving force. So yeah, it's a mixed bucket then. It's not just FCPA like it was you know, five, six years ago. It's a good mix. And in, in that theme, I wanted to get your take on the DOJ's June 2020 guidance update on the effectiveness of a corporate compliance program. I know a lot of people have been talking about it, a lot been written on it. And to me, you know, as a practitioner, I think it's a, it was a great piece for generating awareness. And so I wanted to get your take. Does it raise the bar for corporate compliance programs of all sizes, not just for the Fortune 500, or is it apply to everybody? To kind of back up for a second, I think yeah. it's really hard to overstate how much better DOJ has gotten at compliance. When I was there, if you had to come in and defend your compliance program, sometimes we'd schedule those meetings for an hour and huh. you can't learn anything in that period. But as DOJ took on a compliance consultant, Dan Kahn took over the FCPA unit and Chuck DeRoss before him. They both really focused on compliance. When Andrew Weissman joined, he if you look into his background, he's a big fan of studying behavioral economics and sort of what drives companies to do what DOJ wants, which fundamentally is just a self-police. And so DOJ has gotten so much more sophisticated in this area. And you can see that the work product they put out, especially looking at the original to the new one, shows that they're meeting with a lot more compliance officers and they're listening and they're seeing sort of where the weaknesses are and trying to give guidance on how to assess all those things. You know, the SEC is not left out of that. When I was right. at DOJ, we worked on the guide, the original FCPA guide. The 2012 and, one? Or the right, one before? Right. Yeah. That was, that, was the one, right. that was the one I originally worked on. And then, and then cool. you know, the revision came out to that as well. So everyone's getting involved. I think the point of the guidance is that the compliance requirements, they apply to everyone. But one thing that you'll note about how DOJ and SEC write this is they're very focused on risk. They come back to the, the original risk assessment and updating that risk assessment. And what that means is that one size doesn't fit all. If you're a very small company, you're going to do less than a multinational um, sure. 170 companies is going to do, but it doesn't mean you can't do anything. You got to pay attention to the guidance that DOJ put out because you know if you're not doing anything and you wind up in front of them, it'll be a problem. And I think the thing about the the corporate enforcement guide is that it's, it's sort of DOJ wide. So it's, it's not just if you come in front of them for an FCPA violation, it's basically anything. So there, I think prosecutors across the country are upping their game in this area. Yeah, and that's a good segue for what I wanted to explore kind of on the proactive side. You know, when I think about that guide and the initiatives, the proactive things that can be done beyond just the written policies and procedures, what are the typical things that compliance officers can do to demonstrate effective compliance, whether that's in the third party due diligence or payments or sales, commissions, what are the areas that demonstrate effective compliance? Look, I think fundamentally, something that DOJ and SEC have always wanted is for everyone to read their resolutions, their corporate resolutions and their prosecutions with sort of rapt attention, right? So DOJ and SEC those documents that are put out when someone gets in trouble or a company gets in trouble, they're never written for the company. They're not even written for the court. They're written for everybody else. And so huh. I think the key is really to look at the risks that are highlighted over and over again in corporate resolutions that the regulators and the prosecutors put out. And so you, you named a couple of them right there. I think 
I've seen compliance programs become much, much more proactive in the space of vetting their third parties and watching their accounts payable. If you look at AP, you know, you can figure out a lot of what the potential problems are. DOJ is very focused on, you know, how does money leave the company? Because if no money leaves the company, with a couple of exceptions, right? If you hire relatives of foreign officials or something like that, money doesn't leave the company except in terms of salary potentially. But generally speaking, money has to come out of the company. Who's getting paid? That's right. Exactly. And I I think, you know, one interesting thing is that DOJ sort of does these things in waves. If you look at the last handful of years, there were several technology companies that had resolutions that really focused uh, fundamentally on how those technology companies interacted with their distribution chain. So including all the way back to the deal desk, how are you managing your deal flow? How are you pricing your deals? And are you using analytics to look for outliers that might suggest that too much margin is sitting out there in in the channel? And then that might be used for untoward purposes. And I've seen, you know, I've worked recently with a company that picked up on those resolutions and decided to do something about it. So I, I think you know, compliance officers are getting very, very sophisticated in this area. In all three of those areas that we talked about, AP, third-party vetting, and, and deal management, a lot of it comes back to DOJ and SEC, they look at how companies use their data to sell things, and they wonder why the compliance officers don't have the same ability to access data and to use it to do what DOJ and SEC consider fundamentally more important, which is making sure that even though you sell things, you don't commit a crime or you don't violate some other law in the process. Yeah. You know, I heard a great quote from a compliance officer friend of mine. He said, your compliance program and functions should be at least as sophisticated as the underlying business. And I thought that was a good way to think about it in terms of analytics driven or, or not. But if you're a sophisticated analytics driven company, then it goes to speak that you should have some level of sophistication in your compliance program to monitor it. Totally. And Yeah. Well, we've got time for one last question, and it's one that I like to ask all my guests. Uh, when I think about the audience out here listening, uh, what advice would you give them as they think about their 2021 priorities? And hopefully it's in a post-COVID world, but when they think about 2021 investment priorities or initiatives, what should they be thinking about come next year? Great question. I think every company is going to be fundamentally different. And I think it goes back to that first point, which is, you have to assess your risk periodically. And frankly, COVID has fundamentally changed so many things about how companies are doing business, where their employees are, how much they're spending on third-party vendors. I think it's time to go back, even if, you, even if companies have recently done a risk assessment and renew that risk assessment and sort of figure out, okay, with how we've changed, are our risks a little bit different than they were before? And to really look at what might be done differently. What might you want to scope into an IA audit that you hadn't you know, you hadn't done recently? Um, Are there people you need to talk to that you hadn't talked to recently? Do you really need to double down on that third party question because you're using so many more vendors to do things because you've either shed headcount or you just can't put people out in the field the way you used to? And then I think, you know, secondly, there are some basics, right, to continue, even though there's a lot out there about how the business is doing and you need to focus on sales, you really need to layer in the continued compliance messaging, um, obviously. And then I think one of the fundamental things that I think I see compliance programs struggle with is how much work they do that never gets documented. I think this is something oh. I tell chief compliance officers all the time. You're very good at your job. You spend multiple thousands of hours doing it every year and you don't write it down anywhere. And so if you can't oh. go and replicate and show your work, if the company gets in trouble, all that work is really for naught because you're not going to be able to show your progress. So I think getting back to basics a little bit, 
is always a good idea. Even in That's a great case. piece of advice. Yeah, you think about that. If you can't demonstrate it or repeat it, it didn't happen. Wow. Good point. Well, Steve, thank you very much for uh, joining me out on the pond today and appreciate your time. And uh, we'll have to have you back on the show uh, very soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. And everybody, thank you for listening to uh, the Walden Pond, part of the Tom Fox Compliance Podcast Network. See y'all. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Walden Pond Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review.